During this month that I've been away, things have not gone very well in our country, have they? First week that I was gone, the Supreme Court made same-sex marriage the law of the land. My sister's pastor said, when he heard the news, he just felt a profound sadness. That's how it struck him. The best analysis that I have read is this is a battle between the sexual revolution and Christianity. Uh, this is not ultimately uh, Republicans against Democrats or conservatives against liberals, but it is sexual license against the Christian faith. Uh, the sexual revolution has always wanted no restrictions on sexual conduct. And Christianity to that says a very strong and clear no. One pastor put it real well. He said, the real battleground is against God, Christ, the Holy Spirit, the Bible, the church, and the gospel. And so Christianity must now be pressured, harassed, beat back, and made to compromise. At our July 4th parade here in Marquette, for the very first time in my life, I saw gay pride marchers in the parade complete with drag queens. And I said to Ellen, who was sitting there with me, I, I think that's a drag queen. Someone later confirmed that, telling me that there were drag queens down at the food fest at Lower Harbor. It is all out in the open now, and has been given full sanction by this new law, and what I think we all know is this is not the end. It is really only the beginning. 1 Timothy 3.13 says this, Evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. And I shudder to think what our children and our grandchildren will witness as the sexual revolution goes on from bad to worse. And then my last week away, we learned that Planned Parenthood, the largest provider of abortions in our country, is harvesting organs from aborted babies. I was 14 years old when the Supreme Court made abortion on demand the law of the land. You may remember the arguments for it. They said, well, this uh, is needed because um, poor women who have no other alternative uh, need to be kept from turning to back alley abortions. And so we need this because it won't really increase abortions. Where are we at now? One in four women have had an abortion. 55 million babies have been aborted since 1973. And we are now learning that this organization has been harvesting organs to sell for decades. One congressman stood up at our Capitol building and he said this, The heart has value. The lungs have value. The liver has value. 
But the child has no value. And I think the greatest analysis that I heard was this. The worst crime we can be guilty of is infanticide. We now have infanticide for profit. How low can we go? And it is being paid for by uh, tax funding. Let me ask you this morning, what is worse than infanticide, harvesting the organs and selling them for profit? That's what's worse. And one of the main spokesmen for one of our political parties stood in the rotunda of our Capitol building and said they are breaking no laws. May I ask you this morning, whose laws? Certainly not God's. Many of our leaders cannot think straight anymore. Down is now up. And up is now down. I think of the words of Isaiah in chapter 5, verse 20, in which he said this, Woe to those who call evil good, and good evil, who put darkness for light, and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet, and sweet for bitter. This is where we are today. Now, does the Bible have anything to say that will help us? What does the Bible have to say to us living in this day? Somebody asked me when I returned this past week, Pastor Brian, are you going to preach on any more parables? I have one left. And I did not anticipate going in this direction until I began studying this parable in Luke 19. And what I discovered in this parable is Jesus is teaching us what we can expect in times like these. I want you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke 19. And Jesus is on his way for his final trip to Jerusalem. Uh, This will be his final Passover. And in verse 11 of Luke 19, we read these words. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable. Because he was near to Jerusalem, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Now, the Jewish people in Jesus' day never got past this. They constantly thought that Jesus was going to establish his kingdom, defeat his enemies, and usher in the golden age. And as they neared Jerusalem during the Passover, they were reminded of the great deliverance that they had experienced, their ancestors, from the slavery in Egypt. And so they expected that Jesus would display His miraculous powers. There would be an angelic army. The son of David would once again occupy the throne. But instead, Jesus was arrested. He appeared before a mock trial. He was cruelly tortured, murdered on a Roman cross. His followers ended up hiding. And in 37 years from this very time, the Romans would come in. They would crush the nation of Israel. Rivers of Jewish blood would flow in the streets and the nation would be scattered to the wind. All that they had hoped for in their country would be ruined. And the question is, What now? 
What now? Don't you feel that way? I do. I'd hope for so much more in our country. Instead, when I returned, I found this letter on my desk from Franklin Graham. Listen to what he says. As a nation, we have arrogantly turned our back on God, and I believe God's judgment will come against our country. It's hard not to argue with him, is it? So what now? What now? Well, Jesus told this parable to give us an answer. And this morning, I want you to follow with me through the parable as Jesus tells us what we can expect in times like these. Notice the first thing that our Savior says to us. Jesus' kingdom is not delayed. Is delayed, it is not canceled. Jesus' kingdom is delayed, it is not canceled. Look at verse 12. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Now, Jesus is drawing on some historical background for this parable that was very familiar to the Jews. Both Herod the Great and Archelaus, his son, had done these very things. They had traveled to Rome to become vassal kings over parts of Israel. They were given their rule. And then they returned to Israel. In fact, from this very place, Jericho, where Jesus told this parable, Archelaus had a palace nearby where he ruled from, so these people very easily remembered these events. Now we understand who Jesus is talking about. The nobleman is Jesus. The far country is heaven. When he goes away, it's a reference to his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. And his return means that he is going to be gone for a while before he establishes his kingdom. Now here's the point we need to understand. Jesus' point is that his kingdom would experience a delay before it would fully come. All of this was in God's plan. It was part of His purposes for the world. And God is letting us know that Jesus would not exercise His full authority in this world until He comes again. You know what a lot of Christians are thinking about today? They are very rightly discouraged over what may be coming next in our country. Uh, Not long ago, Pastor Hank and I heard Pastor Erwin Lutzer say these very words. He said, I believe that God can send revival, but I must honestly say I don't see it happening. We heard Pastor Crawford Loritz pray, and he cried out to God. He said, God, spare us. Don't judge us, God. I have to say to you this morning, I have never heard Christian leaders talk like that. The times we are living in are very, very serious, and we very, very much need to plead for America. But here's the point I think Jesus wants us to understand. This delay in his kingdom should not discourage us. 
It should not discourage us. See, one of the mistakes that we often make is identifying a specific nation with God's kingdom. America has many believers in it. We have been influenced by the kingdom of God for many years. But hear me very carefully, America is not God's kingdom. The Bible teaches us that God's kingdom comes in two stages. When Jesus returns, he will set up a thousand-year kingdom. And he will reign and rule on this earth. We pray for that when we pray, thy kingdom come. But in the meantime, there is a spiritual kingdom. That spiritual kingdom is in the hearts and lives of all who have accepted the gospel and believe in Jesus Christ worldwide. Jesus referred to that kingdom in Luke 17, 21, when he said, the kingdom of God is within you. And when he stood before Pilate in John 18 and verse 36, he said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight. Why are the Muslims fighting today? Their kingdom is of this world. Our kingdom during this delay is not. It's a kingdom in the hearts and lives of believers. And I believe God is already in the process of judging America. Listen, one pastor said, you cannot abort babies and sell their organs for profit and not call that murder. You can't do that. You can't endorse sexual perversion and call that marriage. You can't do that. And there is no question that God will judge our country. And we need to understand this. America needs God, but God does not need America. If we continue to go our own way and turn our back upon God, He may very well let us go, but His kingdom work in this world will continue on. By the way, why does Jesus delay? Why is he delaying? Well, it is to give people a chance to repent and believe the gospel and be changed. Look at what's going to happen when his full authority comes. Look down at verse 27. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, Bring them here and slaughter them before me. That's what's going to happen when Jesus' full authority is brought to bear in this world. Say, aren't you grateful that Jesus is patient? Aren't you grateful that he's long-suffering? In fact, look at the heart of the Lord Jesus back in verse 10, right before this parable. Look at what he said. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That is the heart of Jesus, and it is why he is delaying his kingdom. Those drag queens down at Food Fest, the ones that I saw on Washington Avenue in broad daylight a few months ago, Jesus loves them. He died for them that they might be forgiven and transformed. He is delaying because he is extending grace to them 
that they might be forgiven, that they might be brought into a relationship with God, and that they might be transformed and given heaven as an eternal inheritance. That's why Jesus is delaying. You know, I believe they're going to be transformed drag queens in heaven because of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me make this clear this morning. Whoever you are, whatever sins you've committed, Whatever temptations you are now struggling with, Jesus Christ loves you. He died for you. He is delaying for you. And if you will turn to Him, He will forgive you. He will change your life. He will help you with all the temptations that you struggle with so that you can live a life pleasing to Him. That's the heart of our Savior. Now, secondly, in this parable, I want you to notice that Jesus says we can also expect that believers are to serve Jesus during the delay. We are to serve Jesus during the delay. Would you look with me at verse 13? Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minutes. And he said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. Now the question in this parable is, what does the minna refer to? It doesn't refer to our talents or to our gifts because those differ. We do not all have the same talents, spiritual gifts, or resources. What was a minna? Well, a minna was equal to uh, three months' wages. So it is a reference to capital or treasure. In the Bible, treasure refers to the gospel of salvation. In fact, Jesus told two parables, the parable of the pearl of great price and the parable of the hidden treasure that describe the gospel of the Lord Jesus. So that's what the minna is. And when he says, engage in business, what he means is, invest in the gospel. Keep your finger here and turn over to Luke chapter 12 for just a moment. And I want you to notice how Jesus talks about this in verses 32 through 35. Look at Luke 12. Fear not, little flock. For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Don't worry, during this time of delay, that kingdom will one day come. What should you do during this time of delay? Well, look at verse 33. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. That's what Jesus is telling us. Invest in the gospel. I love the way Pastor Ken Hughes puts this. Listen to his words. We must invest the investment Christ has made in us. 
We are to multiply our spiritual capital, invest the gospel, increase the yield of the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ. This is not a matter of gifts, but a matter of investment. So what does he mean in practical terms? Get the gospel out to the lost. Help new believers to to grow in their faith as, as we saw so wonderfully yesterday in that wedding ceremony with the Lingles. And pursue spiritual growth and, and likeness to Christ in your own life. That is investing in the gospel. Do you know last year uh, some of the campus ministries met the new president over at NMU for the very first time. He was very friendly to the things that we are doing in ministry on the campus of NMU. And I was so grateful to see that the doors are wide open to the gospel at NMU. Let's invest in the gospel in that place. This past week, Miles and some of our young people took our VBS from June all the way to the Two Heart and shared what we had right here in our sanctuary in the Two Heart with a number of young people. God bless you, Miles. That's investing in the gospel. And that's what God is calling us to do. Now I want you to notice two things we can expect while we do this. Would you please follow me? Number one, we can expect hatred and opposition. We can expect hatred and opposition. Look at verse 14. But his citizens hated him. And they sent a delegation after him saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. Do you know this actually happened with Archelaus? He was so hated by the Jews that when he went to Rome, they sent a delegation following him, protesting his rule, and they told Rome, do not make him king over us. Now what Jesus is saying is this would happen to him and his followers, and please follow this, when he says they hated him, it is in a tense that means they were hating him, so the idea is the hatred would continue. Would you turn with me for just a moment to John 15? And I want you to notice how Jesus expanded on this. Look at verse 18 for just a moment. And notice what he said. If the world hates you, Know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. 
If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. As evil dominates more and more, we can expect hatred to rise more and more. In the last few months, the elders have been reading this book by Chuck Swindoll entitled The Church Awakening, An Urgent Call for Renewal. It is about how to minister in times like these today. My only regret with this book is I wish it had been written 20 years ago. I could have used this in 1990. But let me read for you what Pastor Swindoll says. We find ourselves in a world that is less friendly to the church and more than ever disconnected from the Bible. Every courageous pastor who speaks the truth is under the gun. He is in the direct line of fire from the adversary who would like nothing more than to ruin his reputation or preferably take him out. Pray for your pastor! Exclamation point. He needs it more than you can imagine. One of the great encouragements for me in this day is Paul's words that he heard from the Lord in the vision. In Acts 18, Paul was struggling with opposition in the city of Corinth. And in chapter 18, starting at verse 9, the Lord appeared to him in a vision. And these are some of the most encouraging words for me in this day in the ministry that we find ourselves in. Look at Acts 18, verses 9 through 11, and what God said to Paul in the midst of the opposition he experienced. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many people in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Does God have a word for us today? You better believe He does. Do not be afraid. Go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. Now here's the second thing we can expect during this time of delay. We can expect that one day we will give to Jesus an accounting. Look at verse 15 in in Luke chapter 19, and and notice what happened when he returned. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. We are all as believers going to have to give an account for what we've done for Jesus during this delay. The Bible says this is going to happen at the judgment seat of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive what is due us in the body, whether it is good or bad. 
And when Jesus returns to rapture his church, we will be gathered before him at that judgment seat, and we will give an account for how we have served him during this time of delay. Can I say to you, when I was a boy, it seemed like Christians took this accounting very seriously. I would hear my pastor say something like this, I do not want to be found in any place doing something that I would be ashamed of in front of Jesus. Do you know that's very biblical? 1 John 2.28 says, My little children, abide in Him so that when He comes, we may have confidence before Him and not shrink back in shame at His coming. And Christians have always historically thought this way. Let me ask you, do I really want to be in a casino gambling with God's money knowing that I will have to give an account to Jesus? Do I really want to be at a tavern drinking at the bar Influencing others in a lifestyle that could destroy him? When I think of Jesus' return, do I really want to be watching on my DVD suggestive movies that create impure thoughts in my mind that dishonor the Lord in light of his coming? And do I want not to want to be speaking to a brother? alienated from a, a brother in Christ, out of sorts with him, when Jesus returns? You know, this has always been a huge motivating factor for Christians. It has always impelled Christians, this sense of accounting, to want to do our very best for Jesus. Why should this be so powerful in our lives? Well, it's because of the third expectation in this parable. As Jesus closes out this parable, he says to us that, that he will have the final word. Look with me at what that word is going to be like starting in verse 16. Please follow along as I read. The first came before him saying, Lord... Your minna has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you've been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your minna has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your minna, which I have kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you. Because you are a severe man, you take what you did not deposit, and you reap what you did not sow. By the way, that's a lie, isn't it? This servant did not know the heart of God. 
He didn't understand the generosity of the Lord Jesus. It's very clear he did not know what his God was like. And so notice how Jesus continued. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the minna from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. When Jesus comes, he will evaluate three types of people. Here they are this morning. He will evaluate faithful servants and they will receive eternal rewards. He will evaluate false servants and they will receive eternal loss. And he will evaluate hostile enemies and they will experience eternal destruction. Now, I don't have time to develop all three of these. So let me develop this morning the first one. The first one came and said, Lord, your minna has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you've been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. Listen to me very carefully. Jesus is saying every Christian will have the chance to earn the greatest rewards. This is not limited to the super talented, to those who have lots of resources. It is not limited to those who have high education. What Jesus is saying is, if what we have done with our life and our resources has been given to Jesus to the best of our ability, then he will reward us with the highest reward. So listen to what this means. Someone with lesser talent and lesser resources, if they gave their very best to Jesus, will receive the greatest reward. I love what Bible teacher Campbell Morgan had to say about this. I think he is spot on. Listen to what he said. The greatest rewards that will ever come to churches or to people will be bestowed not according to the greatness of the strength they had or the greatness of the opportunity as it appeared to men, but according to faithfulness to opportunity and full use of the measure of strength possessed. That is spot on. Brothers and sisters, every one of us today can be a ten-minna Christian. Every one of us. I love what Billy Graham used to say about the little old widows in tennis shoes. He said, the little old widows in tennis shoes sending me $10 a month may end up being rewarded more than me because they were faithful with the little that God gave to them. That is 
incredible. Here's something else. Jesus will be far more generous to us in rewards than we could ever imagine. Turning one minute into ten, that's not an astral amount of money. Take three months of your wages, multiply it by ten, that's a lot of money, but it's not an astronomical amount. And I want to say, ten cities for that? Ten cities to rule over for turning one minute into ten? Listen, Jesus will be lavish in his rewards. When I was growing up, a a man in our church actually said this, if I'm going to heaven, won't that be good enough? Why should I care about rewards? You know why you ought to care? Because you want to give your very best to Jesus. And you ought to care because Jesus cares. And he wants to reward you with the most lavish, generous rewards in his presence that he can give. And what an incentive to serve him now. Let me close this morning by saying to you, sometimes... The very evil that exists is used by God to awaken people and draw draw them to himself. I have a cousin who had planned to go to New York City and live in sexual immorality with his girlfriend. They were both raised in Christian homes. His grandmother pled with him not to do it. She was my aunt. And how he resisted her pleading, I really don't know. If you know my grandmother, or you know my aunt, she loved me as though I were her own son, and she loved God, and she pled with her grandson, don't do this. He did it anyway. Shortly after they arrived in New York City, 9-11 happened. It so shook up the girl that she moved back home with her parents. It's one of the few good things that I know came out of 9-11. Do you know a second thing I know? I know a family here in Marquette, when 9-11 happened, were so shook up, God so got their attention. Father became a Christian, Mother became a Christian. All three children have become a Christian. Grandfather has become a Christian. They're worshiping God in church in Marquette today. And God is so great and God is so powerful that He can take the evilest things that happen, use them to get the attention of people, turn their lives around, and bring them into a relationship with Him. That's why, that's why, invest in the gospel. Invest in the gospel. Would you please bow your hearts and your heads with me for just a moment.
Listen, if you're here today and you haven't experienced Jesus' grace and salvation, I invite you to Him today. Jesus is delaying for you. He loves you. He died for you. He wants to save you and transform your life. And I know someday in heaven we're going to meet all kinds of people that are so grateful that during this time of delay, in spite of what is happening in our country, Jesus reached them. And today, if you've never turned to him, you can come to know him today. And then for those of us who do know the Lord, we need to seriously be before him and say, Lord, what am I doing with my opportunities? What am I doing with my resources? How am I investing in the gospel of Jesus Christ? So that when he comes, I will be rewarded for my faithfulness to him. Lord, in just a moment, we'll sing, uh, we'll move on from this service. The thoughts of the day will take us away. And I just ask that you would speak to us very powerfully, encourage us, Lord. I'm encouraged. I'm encouraged by your word, which tells us that you have a plan, and we're a part of that plan, and nothing has caught you by surprise. And we have the greatest opportunity to serve you today. And so, Lord, we desire to do that. We want to engage in business until Jesus comes. For his sake we pray. And all God's people said this morning.